forever. Dog. I said, people are always saying I'm like Ernie Kovacs or I'm like uh, Peter Sellers or I'm like uh, Groucho Marx. And that's it. They're all good. Don't knock it. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or one episode of The Wizards of Waverly Place, where I played an agent for fairies. Our guest this episode is John Astin, the original Gomez Adams. He's also been in West Side Story, the original, not the Spielberg remake, the original, the original Batman TV series, and Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. He also has a very close and very moving relationship with the play Our Town by Thornton Wilder. I'll let him tell it. Please welcome John Astin. Mr. Aston, thank you so much for for joining us. Are you? I, I take it you're in Baltimore. I am in Baltimore. Now you were you were born there. Did you grow up there? Uh, no, I uh, uh, my my dad uh, lost his job and uh, found a job in Washington D.C. And so uh, when I was about a year old, uh, we moved to D.C. That's where I grew up, actually. I've always found there's a weirdly contentious relationship between Baltimore and D.C., um, a weird sort of civic rivalry between the two cities who are you know, solid two hours apart. Have you found that in your experience, having lived in both? Well, actually, uh, when I was growing up in, in D.C., uh, Baltimore, to me, was the place uh, where Babe Ruth originated. And, uh, if we would go to Baltimore or pass through Baltimore driving North, uh, in my dad's old car, uh, we would drive by the home where Ruth had lived and, and genuflect, you know, or whatever, <laughs> uh, because we, uh, uh, you know, we, really honored Babe Ruth in those days. Uh, nobody was close to him yeah. in that all-around talent. Even even Lou Gehrig, who was probably in many ways a better hitter, uh, although Ruth's uh, lifetime average is two points higher than Gehrig's. But I think Gehrig had a greater frequency and runs uh, runs batted in i think there's something uh in in ruth's iconography and and i think some of it is is linked to his unlikely shape for an athlete uh that makes him such a uh an inspirational legend on so many fronts um we could talk baseball quite a bit but i want to talk about your dad some more um who was a physicist am i to understand yep and did you? Consider- and really, an electronics pioneer. Pioneer, how so? Well, uh, his work uh, originally, his research was in dielectric constants, and he actually established a few of the constants uh, when he was uh, getting his PhD uh, at NYU. Uh, uh, but his uh, postdoc job was uh, doing research at Johns Hopkins. And so uh, that's how I came to be born in Baltimore. And uh, the financier behind uh, his fellowship uh, left the country when the Depression happened. And... Uh, uh, so his fellowship fell through, and uh, he had a tough time getting another job. And uh, finally, he uh, he signed on at uh, as a junior scientist at the uh, National Bureau of Standards in in uh, in Washington. And uh, uh, during that time. He was uh, he and uh, a uh, an associate 
Um, I believe it was a, a scientist named L.F. Curtis. Uh, they, uh, they were probably the first people on earth to use telemetry. I know they uh, perfected the radio sound and, uh, and there was a lot of talk at that time about getting a patent on, on what they had, but uh, uh, they, they blew it. And uh, somebody in Russia, according to my mother, and you know, that's always quite a little questionable. So it's kind of state run media at that point, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, someone uh, found a uh, uh, one that landed, uh, you know, they sent these uh, uh, transceivers uh, into, into the stratosphere measuring cosmic rays and uh one of them landed in russia and uh it it turned out that uh they copied it and that ended things for the uh, patenting of it uh but uh they got their name in time magazine which we were all very proud of Telemetry, and I, I, I frantically just Googled it, so I don't want my, my listeners to think I'm that smart, but it's it's a, a way of sort of uh, measuring remote communications. Telemetry. Telemetry. Remote communication itself. If you're talking to an object in space, that's telemetry. Oh, okay. I, I wanted to talk about your dad uh, anyway, because I can hear so much admiration and respect coming from you. Did you consider going into the sciences yourself before you found acting? That was exactly what I was going to do. And um, I, I got a scholarship as a math major. Really? Uh, yeah. To uh, I, I had a very uh, shaky high school experience. Uh, I think a lot of actors are going to say that, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but... On the exams, I, uh, uh, I I must have done well uh, on the college uh, exams. They were called, what were they called then? Uh, the college boards? College boards. Yeah. They were called. Yeah, that's pre-SAT. Yeah. You're, you're over 40 then. Yeah, I am. I am. Um, safely, handsomely over 40. Um, uh, I've given, I've given, yeah, I've given a 40 nice little, uh, nice distance at this point. Um, okay. So you do well on the college boards and you get a scholarship. To uh, Washington and Jefferson college. Okay. And, uh, uh, I'm going to make a, a long story short, I hope. <laughs> and, and so, uh, I did not, I'd had a terrible experience with an English teacher and also a terrible experience with a chemistry teacher. Uh, <clears throat> they have no idea the, of the pain they inflicted uh, at that time. Uh, but uh, that was it. I also had a, uh, an injury, uh, uh, a baseball injury, which... Uh, changed my whole life really uh how so and uh well <laughs> it i i had i didn't have a good doctor either we uh, you know my upbringing was uh, somewhat impecunious you know <laughs> uh uh scientists starting out at the bureau of standards in those days didn't make a lot of money uh i didn't i had no idea that we were poor, but uh, uh, my parents easily concealed it, and uh, um, we uh, uh, we thought our Christmases were grand. I remember uh, conversing with my mother after my father had had died, uh, some years after that, uh, and uh, we were talking about you know going over memories and I I mentioned this Christmas where my brother and I 
uh, who incidentally uh, became the scientist and uh, uh, was the uh, founded the UCLA's Higher Education Research Institute uh, and uh, uh, is you know at the top of his field and fortunately still around. The one thing I always remember is that Christmas where my brother and I, uh, Sandy and I, uh, got new bikes. And uh, there was a huge thrill to get a new bicycle. Well, she explained to me, she smiled and she said, they weren't really new. She said, it had snowed. And uh, my dad had taken the bicycles into the cellar and repainted them, bought a new bell and a new seat for each one. And uh, we thought we had new bikes. That is amazing. For all intents and purposes, you had new bike. You know, a, a new seat makes all the difference. Yeah. And that was, was a big thrill. Huge thrill. So, so how do you, if you're, it's interesting, we have so many different people who've come onto the show um, who were not majoring in theater, but a lot of them were in the liberal arts. A lot of them were studying English, tons of English majors. Uh, we had some creative writing people. We've had some government people. You, are, you will be our first math major. How did you find the acting bug? Well, I didn't want to take English when I went to college. Uh, but it turns out I had to. It was a required course. Sure. And I went to the professor and I said, can you tell me how I can take this course, get a good grade, but do a minimum amount of work? I said, I do not like the subject. I think it's just an excuse to BS. And uh, I'm sorry to say this about your profession, but I... <laughs> I, I said something to the effect that I didn't think he was doing much good in the world or, I, I, I don't know, hanging around with books. But uh, it turned out he was a lot smarter than I was. And he, uh, uh, he said, I'll try to help you there. He said, uh, 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 I, I said, I, I don't. I don't think most of this literature is about anything, really. And uh, he said, uh, if you let me uh, give you something to read, you read it, report back to me as to whether or not it's about something. And the first thing he gave me was Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Yes. And uh, I came back and I said, wow. That's really about something. And he said, well, what do you think that is? So we had a discussion about it. And well, I'm going to ask you the same question. What, what, what was your take on Heart of Darkness at, what, 18, 19? Uh, yeah, uh, 18. Uh, um, well, largely, I, I'd say it's about life and death. Uh, uh, it's about power. Uh, a lack of humanity. And uh, Conrad was exposing the evil that rests inside of human beings. So this English teacher really hits you and manages to to shake you out of your out of your your math and sciences bubble a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and I start having a good time in the class. And um it so happened, I had a friend, uh, the late Thomas Felt, uh, uh, who was a historian, became a historian. Uh, he was going to Worcester College. And uh, W&J is in Little Washington, Pennsylvania, which is 27 miles southwest of Pittsburgh, <clears throat> almost in West Virginia, actually. And it, uh, it's just a short trip. It's very close to the Ohio border, too, and uh, Worcester College, it's, uh, well, it was something I could hitchhike back in those days, and uh, 
sent me a letter and he said, my roommate is in a play uh, this weekend. Uh, why don't you hitchhike out and uh, come and see him in, in the play? And uh, I said, okay. I wrote him back right away. He realized that he could write a letter saying he's in this play next weekend. And the letter could go from Worcester, Ohio to Washington, Pennsylvania in a day, probably. And uh, I could write back and he would get it in plenty of time to prepare for my arrival on the weekend. Uh, very few services today can provide that. <laughs> Wondrous round trip. Uh, so I, I hitchhiked out and uh, it turns out that this, this play's author was also playing a leading role in the play. His name was Thornton Wilder. What? And I, I did not know who Thornton Wilder was. I'd done a considerable amount of reading as a youth, but uh, my reading, um, I, I read a fair amount of Shakespeare. Uh, I liked the Irish poets. <laughs> and uh, I, I loved mysteries. So I, I read Sherlock Holmes, Ellery Queen, and, uh, and then uh, my mother was an inveterate reader of uh, mystery stories. And she introduced me to Agatha Christie, Christie uh, 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 Raymond Chandler, yeah. Rex Stout. Yeah. Uh, all, all of those characters. And, uh, and, and she also said, uh, lots of these writers are actually very fine writers, but they don't have that reputation today because their, uh, uh, their genre is, is not respected really. But one day uh, that will change. How did we get away from Thornton Wilder? You went to go see Thornton Wilder in a play. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I really I didn't know who he was, and uh, he's doing the stage manager in our town, and uh, all the university students were playing the other characters, the mothers, fathers. Uh, kids and uh i uh i was so i uh, it's funny uh, this is something that actually happens in acting that you try to do uh, but it's best when it's unintentional the whole effect of that play was revived just now. Mm. As a kid, I was fascinated with the passage of time. And I would select moments in my young life and name them and say that I would remember them always. And I think it was about five years old when I started doing this. I'm, I'm associating with some of them uh, to uh, uh, locate it in time. I remember one of those experiences from 1935 when I was five, and from 1936, when I was six. Uh, and I don't know how much more I remember from those years, but uh, after I saw Our Town, I was, uh, I 
I had to modify my uh, outlook on life. That play will do it. Two and a half hours. As I was hitchhiking back, I, what is this discipline that can change a life in that amount of time? <laughs> now, not all plays are as powerful as our town. And I know a lot of those plays, too. <laughs> Uh, uh, Harold Klurman used to say that you need bad plays to fertilize <laughs> the uh, genre uh, for the good plays. That's Harold Klurman, the influential theater critic, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and you see, I mean, he used fertilize. Uh, Carefully chosen word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he says, because they are the fertilizer and you have to value it. <laughs> hey, everybody. Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live it was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here. DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger the Fourth. Hi, hi, hi. Can't we, wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now. I want to skip ahead 60 years. I didn't plan on doing this, but I'm going to. I had a whole list of chronological questions that I'm throwing out the window right now. You yourself eventually played the stage manager, did you not? Yeah, I did. A in, in Baltimore? Uh, yes. When I was a student at, at, uh, at Hopkins. So what is it like coming back to that play over the years to play? Uh, and Editor Webb's a huge, uh, important role. He lays down all this exposition at the top of Act One and explains so many details about the town, its history, its demographics. And then and then in, in later in life to play um, to play the stage manager, who is, you know, the, the ringleader of the of the entire production. How does your, and then having seen the author play that role, how does that affect your performance as you as you go on? Like, what is it like playing the stage manager when you've seen the actual play's author do the part? Are you are you inhabited by that? Can you shake it loose? Well, I, uh, I, I didn't want to. I mean, uh, it was very instructive. You, you see, his whole heart was in this play. And uh, he acted it very, very well. It was a rich performance. And one could only learn from it. Believe me, it was uh, nothing I was sorry. Ordinarily, I would be sorry I'd seen a part played before I played it. But because I, you know, like to use my own ideas and so Obviously, you don't want to be influenced. You want to have a clean slate. You can't help getting influenced. But, right. But uh, I was very happy to be influenced by, uh, by Wilder. Uh, and uh, actually, coming back to it, I appreciated it. I actually, I never left it, really. But uh, coming back and working on it, uh, I learned a lot more about it. I appreciated the play even more. Uh, it, it has to deepen with time. When I saw a production in high school on Broadway with Spalding Gray as the stage manager and Helen Hunt as Emily, I remember being floored by that line in Act 3 when she comes back and, and then visits her childhood thanks to the, the, the stagecraft, the stage manager's craft, 
And there is that very, very famous exchange that talks about what we were just talking about in the way we measure time and the way we, we try to stop and take stock of things. You probably know the exchange that I'm talking about. It starts with, and I'm quoting directly here because I want to make sure I get it right. Emily asks, do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? And do you remember what the stage manager says? Uh, uh, no. Saints and poets, maybe. They do some. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my Lord. This is the first time. This is the first time I've teared up during an interview. Um, shit. Shit. Uh, wow. I, and I brought that on myself. I completely kept you into that. And uh, I've made myself. Uh, because you got close to it. I got real close to it. Um, yeah. Wow. I'm sorry I missed that production, but I'm glad I got just a sample of it just now. get into New York theater and you have this incredible story of being discovered going on as an understudy, like real 42nd street shit. Really? Like you, you went out there a green kid and came back a star. Was it, was it major Barbara you were doing? Yeah. Uh, I was covering, uh, actually hired. I played a small part, Morrison, the Butler. Okay. And I actually, uh, I got I got a review for doing that, and, and uh, Charles Lawton played Undershaft and directed. Right, and he was so pleased. He says, "Did you see your notice?" <laughs> it was so <laughs> lovely of him. Uh, he, uh, I, uh, that was for the Butler, but I I played. Uh, uh, Burgess Meredith was playing Cousins. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, he was also producing Dial M for Murder at that time. And he had to leave for about a week or so for the opening of Dial M. Well, uh, a, a very fine actor named Richard Lupino, uh, uh, Ida's nephew, Oh wow! Okay, was playing the part of Lomax in that uh, in that play, and uh, um, he he was covering Cousins. So uh, Dick played Cousins, and I played Lomax. And um, in what is Shaw's third act, and it was Lawton's second act. Undershaft has all those fantastic speeches about uh, 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 that poverty is a crime and so on. The various ways to, to solve it. Yeah. And, and uh, 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 in his style, he's first talking to the cast and then, you know, gradually he works his way to the audience and he's telling the audience all this stuff. And it, it was a wonderful stroke uh, that actually, uh, it got a good notice in, in uh, notices in New York, but Charles actually had an off night uh, and wasn't his wonderful self. Uh, uh, in, in Boston, Elliot Norton said it was the best thing he'd seen in 20 years. And, uh, uh, and I, I think we all hoped that it would get that kind of raves in New York. We had good notices and we ran a year, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't get what many people in the audience got to see Charles do uh, every night. So, uh, at the end of most of those speeches, Lomax has a short speech in which he sums up all of it. And I, I was for Charles gave me an idea for the character, 
which I latched onto, and I got a larger round than Charles got on that short speech. Was Charles cool with that? Are you kidding? He stopped and looked at me, and his next line was quite so. By the way, may I call you Charles? Now, that was, and what he did, he broke his own blocking, walked across the stage, shook my hand, and said, by the way, may I call you Charles? Oh, wow. I thought. That was so damned wonderful. What an anointing. I had that experience for about a week or so. And I, uh, I was, uh, I, I was, uh, you know, struggling to get agents to come and see it. I can tell you, this is the way the business is. I, two agents I can think of right now, came to see it, told me they liked what I did, but uh, there there was no offer to sign me. And uh, it's sort of a poetic justice in a way because of just maybe three or four, maybe, no, more like five years later, they uh, wanted to, uh, uh, I was in California and they wanted to uh, hire me for uh, New York, wanted to work for me in New York. They said they wanted to sign me for New York. Well, uh, my then agent in California didn't want that, so it didn't happen. But anyway, uh, okay, because uh, uh, Lawton was in it, uh, you know, a lot of people in the uh, uh, theater game came to see the play, and uh, one of those people was uh, Tony Randall. And uh, I didn't know he had seen it. And this was four years later. So it didn't happen right away. It wasn't 42nd Street. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I didn't, uh, you know, I just kept struggling. I got fired from a job. Uh, but I had a tremendous experience. Uh, I, I studied with Clerman for five years. Oh, wow. Uh, I thought he was the greatest theater intelligence imaginable. I mean, he, he understood so much about the theater. And uh, after three years, I think I'd heard the majority of his stories, but hmm. just to see him, watch him analyze a scene was an education all in itself. And I, I looked forward to every class. Uh, it was at night, so that working after the show is closed. Wow. So that working actors could come and see, the could be in the class. So you're talking, I mean, this is the days of the 830 curtain, unless I'm mistaken. So so you're looking at like a 1130 midnight class time. And for a lot of that time, I was in Three Penny Opera. Yeah. Which was playing at the Theater de Lise in the village. Right. And which is, is that now the Lucille Lortel or am I getting my places mixed up? No, okay. that's the theater on Christopher Street. Right. Now. Curtain came down around 11.30, I think, something like that. Yeah, it's a long one, Three Penny. Late, because Three Penny is a long operation. And we were, uh, you know, the show uh, ran 
for about eight years. And at one time was the longest running show in New York history uh, until the Fantastics came along and knocked it off that uh, perch or platform, whatever you want to call it. But uh, it, what I would have to, I, I, I had to miss some of class. And I don't, I honestly don't remember when it began, but I think class started at 1030. Uh, which was uh, uh, plays didn't last so long uh, then, or they lasted forever. Uh, you know, <laughs> depended on the uh, you know what a a great German play by Schiller might last <laughs> four hours. Who knows? Right, but. Uh, I, I'd get there as fast as I could, but I, I, I remember I, I finally decided not to take off my makeup backstage. I took it off on the subway, <laughs> and uh, I was quite a sight. Well, it's that very stark sort of German expressionist makeup too. So you're not just like we're not talking about a little bit of powder. We're I mean you're you're made up. Yes. And it's got a spontaneity to it, that scene. You're, you're glad hand. You, you set down the rules for the dance at the gym. You're there to try to keep these kids on the, on the straight and narrow. But it's an interesting scene because it's some welcome comic relief in what is, a, it's, a, you know, it's upsetting. It's a tragic story. How much freedom were you given on set? Were you given freedom to kind of play and improvise a little bit? I... I had seen the play on Broadway at the Actors Fund Benefit. Oh, wow. And uh, had no thought that I would play uh, Gladhand ever in it. But uh, when the reading came up for that part, I realized that not without a lot of thinking was I a natural for it. And I decided that I would go in for the interview as that character. Beautiful. And uh, I remember they enjoyed the exchange. Uh, and I know on the first uh, recording in which the, uh, Bob Wise talks about uh, the uh, shooting of the movie, he has a segment involving my interview and talks about me and so on. The strange thing is he let me go. Let me do whatever I felt like doing. And there were times when he would, well, once he turned away from the camera to uh, stifle a laugh. Uh, and uh, and then yelled, "Cut!" When his back was to the scene. Well, the, I mean, the cast must have adored you because here you are. You're a dash older than these guys. You're like 31 at the time, or something. You're clearly the funniest person in the room, uh, possible exception, Rita Moreno. And and they must have just delighted working with you. We had a good time. We we had a good time. It really comes across. Uh, but uh, uh, I never worked for Bob Wise again. Interesting. Because there was never a part like that. Yeah. No, I guess there wouldn't be. I was that character. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, his enjoyment in the character is clear in the the recording. You're talking about the uh, the the commentary or the one of the. I, I don't. I forget what you call it. it was an album uh, they made with West Side Story in it, and then all the commentary on it. Oh, cool! It's the way they do with they do it with lots of uh, famous movies. I don't know if it's on the current one. I bet it is. I have a pretty comprehensive Blu-ray in the other in the other room. I bet there's something. I bet there's something like that in there.
Um, I got, I have to, before we run out of time here, obviously, and I'm so glad we're talking about a bunch of other stuff. I have to get to Gomez. How do you, so you've, you, you, you have this break on, on Broadway that took uh, this, this four year overnight success. Um, and that leads you to sitcom work on Dickens. He's Fenster sort of broad physical comedy there. And then, and then it is time to do the, the Adams family, how do you adapt a character that isn't even a comic strip? It's in a comic panel, a one single picture panel every couple of weeks in the New Yorker. How do you get a fully fledged, and it is a fully fleshed out character from that one panel? How much say did you have in the creation of Gomez Adams? All I wanted, actually, uh, because of David Levy, who was the creator of the show. Who adapted it, yeah. And I was the first uh, person he hired for the uh, for the part, and I didn't have to read for it or anything. I mean, he just offered me the part. Oh, great! And then the part was explained to me incorrectly in a big meeting with uh, everybody there, the studio head, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I, I went home thinking this will never happen. <laughs> and uh got a call from from David and uh explained the uh his intention with the show we became close friends and uh i miss him to this day as i miss uh Nat Perrin who was hired later on as a uh, producer of the show uh, actually and he wrote uh, we did a presentation film to begin with, and uh, that became the first episode after Nat had written the conclusion of the story. This is the first episode that I just recently, I, I rewatched it this week, directed by Arthur Hiller. Yeah. That's that's a well-kept secret. I didn't realize he had, uh, he had cut his teeth on the Adams Family pilot. That's incredible. My first series was... Uh, I'm Dickens, he's Fenster. About the two construction workers, or handymen, right? And the pilot of that was directed by Arthur Hiller. Interesting. Isn't it? And in Viva Max, the original director on the project was Arthur Hiller, and that's how I became involved in the project. He wanted me to play Max, but uh, I, uh, I ended up playing the sergeant and uh, the both very good parts. Sure. So I had no problem switching. That's the part that, uh, that Peter, the part that Peter Ustinov got. Yep. I want to talk about your Gomez because it actually is, is your Gomez is making more and more sense the more I talk to you. The way you talk about just experiencing the little things and finding joy in these little pockets of time, so much of that comes across in your portrayal of, of Gomez. There's this childlike enthusiasm in your Gomez. Like Raul Julia did horny, erotic Gomez, and I'm not taking anything away from that. That's great. It's like Hamlet at this point. You can take, you can put your own spin on the part. <laughs> but yours has this enthusiasm, this infectious lust for not even lust, but just this childlike enjoyment of life. That when, when we first see him, he's playing with his model trains so he can blow them up. But still, was that a conscious move on your part? Yeah. As the series went on, uh, the romance between Gomez and Morticia became uh, critical to the show. And uh, it's oh, as the kids say, it has always been relationship goals for me. Um, Gomez and Morticia and their connection. Uh, it's just my favorite TV marriage of all time. It really is. They're just crazy about each other. When they fight, it's about important stuff. They don't bicker. It's just I, I love that couple. Well, you, you know, credit Carolyn Jones to, uh, uh, you, you know, she she was uh, really so perfect in, in that role. Let it be said that I was watching with my 11-year-old son who couldn't get over how hot she was. Yeah, she is hot. <laughs> was hot, but uh, <laughs> the grave's a fine and private place. But none, I think, do their embrace. Embrace. 
Right. And unfortunately, that's yeah. the case. Uh, but uh, uh, she was a, a good friend, and uh, I, I still miss her. That's nice to hear. That's really nice to hear. But uh, I had been a fan of Charles Adams as a college student. My roommate and I would pool our funds and buy a, a Charles Adams cartoon book. And we would uh, razor out a particular panel that we liked, frame it, and put it on the wall. He's incredibly influential. Without him, there's no Far Side. Uh, there's probably no Doonesbury. Uh, there's so much, so many people who can trace their... There's no Tim Burton, um, uh, Jules Pfeiffer. So many people took from him. For sure. And uh, and we'll give it up to him in interviews. Um, yeah, there's, there's, we, again, that's another hour just on Charles Adams alone. Well, what are the cartoons to begin with? They are generally an attack on the cliche. Yeah. And... Give me a cliche, I'll show you an Adams cartoon, most likely. That will that will turn it on its head. Yeah. And, and what is the device? Implied violence. No violence is carried out in the scene, in the cartoons. There, There's some, you might say, I mean, when the woman's sitting on the porch well, a huge snake has a lump inside that's wiggling, and, and she criticizes her husband for complaining or something. Uh, and that <clears throat> that's that's not really violent because you don't see the snake devouring. You never see the the molten lead hit the Christmas carolers. It's the moment before. You you don't see it even poured. It's they're ready <laughs> and, and it's uh, or the fester like character in the car who's motioning on the on the steep hill with a big truck coming down the other way motioning the car uh, you know with a friendly gesture you know pass me you know I'm going too slow sinus head says bridge <laughs> out or something no, the truck's coming down the other. It's a narrow road on a high uh, mountain. Oh, right. Yes, I do remember that one. Yes, yes, yes. Coming down. And, you know, you go on ahead, you know. In those <laughs> days, that that was when the car was too slow. It, it, the, the driver would uh, stick that left arm out the window and wave you ahead. Uh you can't carry that out. So uh, I had for myself to go back into the why of the cartoons. And what I felt strongly was that Adams was doing his best to wake up humanity to the fun and wonder of life. That we're letting fly by us, you know, without stopping and doing something about it. Much like Thornton Wilder was doing. Yeah, exactly. This is not a connection I expected to make this morning. Now, when I uh, explained my feeling about all this to David, he understood completely. And uh, uh, I, I sort of had a chance with the help of Ed James and Seaman Jacobs, who wrote the first script, and Nat. Nat gave me so much to do. Uh, he he caught the spirit of the character and the show, and uh, his name is on the films as a producer, but he did lots of writing. Uh, and not just punching up, but... Uh, he, uh, you know, straightened out 
uh, a, a lot of scripts that would not have been easy to shoot uh, without him being around. Uh, and uh, and the whole, we were really fortunate with the people we got for the show. Almost everyone in it was a real talent. Yeah. Uh, Ted Cassidy. Who was Lurch. He could have done some brilliant work, did some brilliant work as uh, as the uh, as, as Lurch, the butler. Yeah. Uh, he, has that, he has that great moment in Butch Cassidy. In Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But, you know, the, the scene where everybody falls in love with those two is when he gets kicked in the balls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to do a lightning round, okay? I'm going to throw out some roles, and you're going to tell me your recollections of them, all right? Because I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I'm going to I'm going to throw out some roles, and we're going to do John Aston's uh, 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 recollection of those roles. Evil Roy Slade. A lot of fun. It looked like a lot of fun. It, it is a broad satirical Western that predates Blazing Saddles by two years, to its credit. Uh, and also support your local sheriff. That's right. Yes, it comes before that too. It's so it's it's on YouTube, probably illegally, but it is there. You didn't hear it from me. Um, uh, incredible cast: you, Dom DeLuise, Larry Hankin, Henry Gibson, Mickey Rooney's in there. Mickey Rooney is a villain, which is super fun. Um, a lot of fun to work on. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was the uh, Jerry Paris directed it with. Uh, a lot of love and spirit. And uh, uh, I think he served Belson and Marshall very well. It's Jerry Belson and Gary Marshall who wrote the script. Yeah. It was sent to me by Lynn Stallmaster, the casting director, who said, I think you might like this, John. <laughs> and I did. We did it twice. It, it never got on the air. And I, I think... Uh, it's probably a good thing. I, I, I think if you had the bad guy, the star of the show, it can be okay in a movie. But if you did it in television, you probably shouldn't bring this up, but I am. Um, Carol O'Connor's exquisite performance as Archie Bunker probably had ultimately a negative effect because it was warm and fuzzy and charming to be the bigot. That's interesting. There was a certain cuddly quality to his, his racism that I think normalized people who missed the point. That's interesting. Uh, it didn't help. I don't think it helped uh, African-Americans. Uh, whether they liked the show or didn't like the show, uh, it, it, it would have been great one time out, but became a series. And uh, I think when you have the bad guy, you know, uh, uh, Ben wanted to know uh, what character actors I I liked. I was about to ask. I was heavily influenced, and still am heavily influenced, by French actors, primarily Louis Jouvet and Michel Simon. Oh, okay, I know Michel Simon. You've stumped me on the other one. Louis Jouvet, there's a street named after him in Paris. Uh, he he did a lot with the uh, Comédie Française, you know, and uh, he came uh, with, uh, brought the company to America. Oh, I know this guy. Oh, I absolutely know this guy. Oh, I have absolutely seen this guy in things. Yes. Powerful influence on on, on me. The early Richard Attenborough was a, a comedian, yeah, and absolutely uh, marvelous. And uh, 
also, I guess you could call him a character actor, but Max von Sydow is somebody that uh, I was lucky enough to to meet and know. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, Fellini was interested in me for a, a, a film that he never made. I see that, though. I see you guys working. I can see you guys working together and sharing a certain a certain wonderful sensibility. Yeah, we we had uh, uh, we had a nice relationship, and uh, that's another story. Let's see, French actors. Uh, oh well, of course, uh, Sydney Greenstreet, Peter Laurie. Sydney Greenstreet has come up on this show before. Sydney Greenstreet it gets cited quite a bit. He got a very late start, Sydney Greenstreet. Yeah. But he was uh, he was with the Ben Greet players, and I studied with Ben Greet's nephew. Oh my God! My first acting class, and uh, it was in D.C. The summer I tutored uh, math. So you're tutoring calculus in the day and taking acting classes at night. Uh, well, sometimes it reversed. Okay. <laughs> I love that juxtaposition. That is incredible. Let's see. Who am I missing? Two great character actors. But anyway, uh, I uh, I love Jean-Louis Barreau. Uh, uh, and he's more than a character actor, but... Uh, you know, some of, one of my favorite films is Les Enfants du Paradis. That's crazy. I just watched it a few weeks ago. I literally, it's on Criterion Collection. I just watched it for the first time a couple of weeks ago. It's a, it's such a glorious, you know, capture of that, that era of French theater. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, and what, isn't Pierre, Pierre Brasseur wonderful in that? It's so, it's such a fun yeah, it's so there's there's not a bad performance in it actually. It all it all has such a great um a great flow to it. Um yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful piece of work. It is a really really wonderful piece of work. That's so funny you mentioned that. That's so recently on my on my radar. Can we talk about you stepping in to play the Riddler for a moment? Sure. And how kind of weird that had to be, because they were kind of playing contractual hardball with Gorshin. Is that correct? I have no idea. Good. Stay out of it. Stay out of it. <laughs> and didn't even, I didn't want to know. Yeah, sure. And, and they, 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 uh, they said, would you like to come and do a couple of episodes of the Riddler? And I said, I'd love to. And so I went and did it. Was it, um, you, you very much, made it your own though. There's a real sense of with Gorshin, there's a real like malevolence. Like this guy's an actual psychopath. He's, this is very dangerous. And it's not that your Riddler isn't scary, but there's a dash more Groucho in your Riddler. Maybe it's just the mustache, but there seems to be a little more Groucho in the way you handle the Riddler. Oh, that's okay with me. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I remember once I went to Nat Perrin, who did a lot with the Marx brothers. I said, you know, uh, people are always saying I'm like Ernie Kovacs or I'm like uh, Peter Sellers or I'm like uh, Groucho Marx. And, and that said, my boy, they're all good. Don't knock it. Yeah, no kidding. That's uh, that's fine company to keep. I, I, you don't have to be anybody but one of them. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, those are those are all great uh, people to either be influenced by or to steal from wholeheartedly. Um, can we talk for a moment about the Frighteners, the Peter Jackson film you did? Yeah, uh, I'll give you an interesting bit of trivia there. Um, the judge, the character that I played, uh, disappears from the film. I noticed after the museum scene. Yeah, and. What was originally scripted and filmed was the Riddler was in the rest of uh, the uh, picture and even in the final scene. 
The judge, you mean? Uh, yeah, yeah, the judge. Uh, uh, he's he's cut in half by the uh, uh, evil character that comes out of the wallpaper. Right, right. Uh, but uh, uh, he uh, his top half uh, from you know the from the uh, sort of the waistline up. Uh, helps uh, uh, Michael Fox uh, helps him defeat the bad spirit uh, and uh, ends up riding his ghost dog That's right. off into the wilderness. And that The dog's name is Rustler. And uh, I think the last line that we shot was uh, uh, hi rustler away. And, uh, you know, like the Lone Ranger. Yeah. Uh, he, he said my, my something meaning genitals, uh, <laughs> go where are going East and I'm going West. God. And, uh, so, uh, the, the legs and, uh, parts that there adjacent lie, <laughs> going east and uh, the top half is going west. So I'm all through the film and it, it had a a conclusion and a terrific part. And when they had to cut it because uh, they couldn't do the graphics, they didn't have time because they moved the moved the release date up on Peter, uh, uh, Peter, you know, uh, as far as I know, innocent in this thing. Uh, and uh, he felt very bad about it, but uh, that's what they had to do. They couldn't, uh, they, they, they had, they had to do without the judge in the second half of the film. Wow. That's... Nobody seems to notice it. That's what's really. I Well, I noticed it. I was, I was bereft of the judge for the second half. I mean, granted I was looking for the judge, but I, uh, it, it dawned on me that uh, I, I felt there needed to be a little more resolution. You also have the, um, I mean, you have a, a, a huge thematic line in the film. You say death ain't no way to make a living, which might even have been the tag on the poster. Uh, I mean, it's very much sums up the whole film in one tidy little bit of dialogue there. I'm not being fair to uh, one of the most important characters I played, uh, but that it's all in the theater. But uh, hundreds of performances of Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, yes. A, uh, your fellow Baltimorean. Yeah. Um, I'd forgotten that you do that. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it, uh, is it a one-man show? Yeah. When it was in Australia, I was able to arrange a couple of uh, video crews to uh, uh, tape uh, perform a pair of performances from which I should be able to put together, you know, a rendition of the uh, show. That should be uh, uh, an interesting project. I'm hoping to do it one of these days. Uh, oh God, I'd love to see that. I want to ask you. I know you teach, and and you you teach at Johns Hopkins, and you you teach in a occasionally in a theater that bears your name, which is beyond awesome. What is a, a valuable piece of advice that you, with you know, sixty plus years in film and television, seventy plus years in theater? What is some valuable advice you were able to give your students that they, they might not get from other professors? Never give up. Mm. I'm going to leave us there, I think. I'm going to leave us there. John Aston, thank you so much. Thank you for being so kind. And that is an episode wrap on John Aston. He is not on social media, but he is still the program director of the theater department at Johns Hopkins University. Forever. Dog.
Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm.